Hi, this is Welcome to Self, caring for the human in the therapist chair. And I'm your host, Dr. Haley D. Quinn, fellow human, clinical psychologist, supervisor, and trainer. Welcome to Self is a place where you can come and learn ways to elevate your own care and compassion. A place to rest and be soothed. A place to remember that you are human first and choose the helping profession as just one of the roles in your life. My aim is that this is a place of soothing, comfort, nourishment and nurture. A place where you can also welcome yourself. Welcome to another episode. It's exciting to be back with season four and this time with a guest interview. I was so excited when my next guest enthusiastically agreed to come on the podcast. I've been a fan of hers through the podcast she co-hosts and now her new book. So it means a lot that she's joining me today and I'm sure you're going to get a lot from this episode. In this episode we will be talking a lot about working parenthood and I'm aware that not all of you are parents. And some of you may have reasons to choose not to listen into this episode. If that is the case, I hope you'll tune in again for our next episode. I also think there's plenty to learn from this episode if you're not currently parenting. So if it feels right for you, please tune in and I hope you enjoy the episode and find it helpful. It is my absolute pleasure to introduce Dr. Yale Schombrun. Yale is a psychologist an assistant professor at Brown University, co-host of the wonderful podcast Psychologist of the Clock, and author of Work, Parent, Thrive. Having chatted to Yale briefly online, recording this episode was the first time we met face to face. And oh my, what a beautiful human she is. Her kindness and compassion shines through as she talks, and I thoroughly enjoyed our time together. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I have. And I'm sure you'll find lots of great wisdom in here too. So hi, Yale. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I was absolutely thrilled when you uh, agreed to come on and chat with me. Um, it's really, really nice to have you here. I'm a fan and was excited you reached out. So thank you for honoring me with the invitation. <laughs> Oh, that's fantastic. So could we start with you telling us about yourself and your journey into the helping professions? Sure. I have long thought of myself as a young budding psychologist. I think I always wanted to feel helpful to people. It, it, it's maybe selfishly driven because the most important I ever feel is when I have a positive impact on other people. And I discovered psychology in college and research in college and was really on a research track for some years, actually until I became a working parent. And then I, I really did a pivot in my professional life from academic researcher to somebody who translates academic science to audiences that are outside of academia. But I think in my heart of hearts, I've just always been somebody who's interested in well-being and wants to be helpful. And I love science and I love using science and clinical practice to make people's lives better and transforming the way that we sometimes see problems that feel uh, 
like we can't tolerate them into something that we can tolerate more effectively and and even more joyously. Yeah. And you're all based over in the US, aren't you? Right. I'm in Boston. Yeah. So you have a clinical practice. Yes. So I wear a lot of hats. I have a small private practice where I specialize in couples therapy and parent coaching. And I also co-host a podcast called Psychologists Off the Clock. I have a faculty appointment at Brown University where I mostly do clinical supervision over there with the trainees. And then I also am a writer, which is why I'm here to talk about, um, which is what I'm here to talk about, the the book that I just uh, published, which is Work, Parent, Thrive. Yeah, fantastic. So many, many hats that you are wearing and juggling. And I'm yes. sure and I'm a parent of three. <laughs> a parent of three as well, my goodness. Yes. <laughs> and I'm sure as well many of the people listening will will know your podcast, Psychologists Off the Clock. It's absolutely brilliant. So for anybody that hasn't oh, tuned into you. that, they absolutely uh, should go do that because it's fantastic. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That means a lot coming from you because I love your podcast as well. <laughs> well thank, thank you. you. So you've recently, as you say, released a book, Work, Parent, Thrive. And there's so many goodies in that book. And I'm sure we won't get a chance to talk about all of them today. But one of the things you do talk about is this work family enrichment and how you can use work and or family conflict to nourish enrichment. So could you also speak about locating enrichment in work and parenting? You talk about asking yourself questions to do that. So could you talk more about this and also maybe share some of those questions that you might ask yourself? Sure. So let me just start by defining what is work-family enrichment, because most of us know what work-family conflict is. And that, yeah. that is this idea that you know, our, con- our most important life roles, and for some people who aren't parents, that can still be just your, you know, being a partner or a friend and having a job. Or if you don't have a job, it can just be, you know, that fact that most of us inhabit multiple roles and they kind of fight for our attention and our time and our energetic resources. And so that's the idea of role conflict, that when I'm doing one role, I'm not doing the other, and that's bad for the role that I'm not doing. Work-family enrichment is the idea that our roles actually help each other out. And what I think is important to point out is that both are true, right? <laughs> that our, we, we have finite time and energy and attention and uh, uh, resources that our roles really compete for. And also, when we're in one role... We're probably developing skills, for example, that can helpfully feed back into the other. So I think about work-family enrichment in three distinct pathways. So the first one that I almost just described uh, just now is this transfer effect, that when we're in one role, we're often doing something, either taking a break from the other role or gaining skills that can helpfully feed back. The second pathway is what I call the stress buffer effect. And that's the idea that most of us have roles that are more stressful than we'd like on certain days. And having multiple roles gives us an opportunity to step from a stressful role into a different role and have a potentially positive experience in that role. So for example, if I'm having a really tough day at work, getting to go home and give my six-year-old a hug feels Mm. great and kind of takes the edge off a rough work day. Or if my 12-year-old has given me lip, (laughs) go to work and have respectful conversations. And we can do that deliberately. and, And this is where the science is quite helpful in teaching us how to do that deliberately. The third path is what I call the additive effect, and that's the idea that psychologists talk about happiness in a variety of ways, including that happiness can really be founded in having a life full of meaning and purpose. And when we inhabit lots of different roles, we have more opportunity to cultivate meaning and purpose 
and kind of spread our existential eggs in multiple baskets. And so it gives us a chance to craft more meaning and purpose in the broader scope of our lives by having multiple roles to dig into. And so these three pathways offer us ways for our roles to help each other and to help us as individuals, as well as to help our families and our workplaces. And so the questions that I often encourage people to ask is, in what ways are your roles helping each other out? In what ways are your roles, for example, helping you to manage the stressful experiences in life? Mm-hmm. In what ways do your roles help you to amplify a sense of meaning and purpose? And by really digging into those kinds of questions and deeply reflecting on that, most people are able to identify ways that they have access to this idea of work-family enrichment. And what's really surprising and, and kind of fascinating is that until you think about it, until you ask those questions, you may not realize that you're having experiences of work-family enrichment. Yeah. For this book, I interviewed dozens of working parents from really diverse family backgrounds and professional life backgrounds. And a lot of people said, you know, I never thought about it. But now that you're asking me, I'm thinking about it and I can identify. And then later people would reach out to me and say, you know, ever since we talked about it, I'm actually experiencing it more because I'm noticing it and I'm paying attention to it and I'm sort of giving it credit and I'm I'm sometimes reaching out for it when I otherwise might not have even known to do so. And so even just having this concept in mind can actually change our experience even in the same old life that we were live we're living. Yeah, absolutely. So instead of seeing it as all these things compete with each other, actually they can complement each other. I was yeah. um I was a single parent for many years and went back to uni uh, well, didn't go back to uni, went to uni when I was a single mom. And I guess one of the things for me when I think about it in this context is I was on my own at home with a small child a lot of the time. So being able to go out to work or go to university gave me contact with adults. It was, you know, there's some fun time at uni that it was kind of time out from parenting. Um, but then also if things had been challenging and difficult, I could go home and just play with my son and be with him and and have that sort of balance as well. So I think um, I think it's really interesting to look at it like that, isn't it? But because at, at the time, I when I was thinking about your book and my experience, because my son's now um, you know a young adult, I was thinking work parents strive. I think I was like work work parent parent survive. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been the name of my book had I written it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I think it can really feel like that. And and I don't mean to undermine the reality of that experience for anybody. I think there are days where you're where you are work parent and surviving like barely <laughs> by a thread, you know, that happens. That is true. And at the same time, exactly as you're saying, even in what are challenging circumstances, being a single parent and going to school or being a single parent and having a very demanding job. There are ways that we can access this enrichment that that makes the whole rigmarole a little bit easier to tolerate. And when we can recognize that without invalidating the challenges that are real and and daily, then life can feel a little bit more tolerable and enjoyable. Um, and that doesn't mean that you know we don't need more supports or more common sense policy in the world and um, you know fairer gender expectations, things like that. But at the same time, we can use these tools from psychology to make the daily grind a little bit less painful. Yeah, absolutely. I think, like you said before, when we have awareness, I mean, if I had I read your book at that time mm-hmm. in my life, whilst I did see some of that, I think that would have actually allowed me to see that more and perhaps draw on that more as well. And I think that sort of stress buffer effect that you talk about 
would have been something that I'd be like, oh, consciously, this is why I'm going to go do that. That's going to give me ease from what I'm dealing with in the other context. So I think it's a fantastic book that you've written and Thank will be you. so valuable to so many parents. Yeah. Well, so far, I mean, it, the feedback has been great, but there's just been a couple of messages that I've gotten largely on social media from parents who are in a tough transition point. I had one pediatrician parent who just had her third child message me and say that it changed the way that she felt about going back to work after having her third child. And for me, that's like the most meaningful, right? That I got into this profession because I want to feel useful to people. Yeah. Um, so it's just been a really, um, such a satisfying feeling to, to see that people are appreciating this message and are taking it to heart and that it changes the way that both they're thinking about working parenthood, but also that they're engaging in it. Yeah. I like so as well you. that you do touch on in the book and you touched on then that this isn't about kind of not acknowledging that some of the systems that we work with within the world, I mean, we, you and I are in different countries um, and many listeners as well, but within the world that we have systems that do not support parents. We have systems that do not support people. Um, and I yeah. think, you know, you make a point of saying that, you know, this isn't to say this is all on us to to deal with this. These are still things. Policies need to change. Um, there's things that need to happen. But that stuff's outside of our control, isn't it? And when I guess when we think from a psychological perspective, we can't change the things that are outside of our control. So we can focus on this um, and what we can make a difference with. Yeah. And I think about it in like a couple of ways. So first to your, exactly what you said, I do think that there's these sort of outside in issues that psychological tools are not going to, at least yeah. in the moment, fix that they're not your responsibility to fix, but also they're just outside of our control yeah. in this moment. And then there's inside out that can help us tolerate what is a little bit more skillfully and, and more tolerably. The other thing that I often think about is that these psychological tools help us conserve energy for the fights that really do matter to, to fight. So yeah. we need to fight for change. And that is something that we collectively can do and we need to be doing and we are doing, but change is slow, yeah. but it's exhausting and slow work. So we need to use these tools to really clarify like what's important, where can we make change? And also the appreciation of which part of the challenges of working parenthood are systems that need to change and which parts are just fundamentally human that mm. that no matter how hard we fight we're not going to change and what i said in the very beginning of our conversation that i really think is true is that we are going to be pulled in lots of different directions and there's no system that can undo that sigmund freud has this great quote that i love he he contributed a lot that i don't appreciate but there's this one quote that I really love of his where he says, love and work are the cornerstones of our humanness. And that is abundantly true. And if you're a working parent or if you just have multiple roles in life, they're going to pull on each other. And that's not something that a system can or even should undo because that's part of what makes a full life happy mm. and meaningful. And we know that from research, too, that the more roles we inhabit, mm. the happier and healthier we tend to be. And it's uncomfortable. Both are true. So the systems can't undo that human part. But yeah. certainly they need to be changed to make the working parent reality more humane. Yeah. You you also talk about self-compassion and connecting to your parenting wisdom. Um, and I know I'm I'm forever talking to people about, you know, tune in, slow down, listen to your wisdom. Um, how important do you think these are? And could you give us an example of what this might look like for a working parent? Yes. Well, I love that you're constantly counseling people to slow down because slowing down is really 
an important thing to do, right? We, we run hack. around with this. Oh, yeah. It's, it's the best life hack. It's so simple. It's not easy. And I say this to somebody who knows this and is constantly rushing around. Like my New yeah. Year's resolution is to do one fewer thing before I have to go on to the next thing. Because I'm always trying to squeeze one more thing in. And then I'm late. And then I'm stressed out. And then I feel chaotic and disorganized yeah. and not, uh, you know, focused. Anyway, but the definition of wisdom that I use in this book is an Aristotelian definition, which is this idea of doing the right thing at the right time with the right people in the right way. Mm-hmm. And when we are able to kind of tap into the moment, into the role and into our values and to do it in a psychologically flexible way, in an emotionally attuned way, in a way that allows us to be uncomfortable in the service of what's most important to us, then we're better able to do whatever we need to do in a very wise way. And so your recommendation to kind of slow down and tap into that parental wisdom is really spot on. And what I argue in the book is that inhabiting multiple roles actually helps us to increase our wisdom because we gain a lot of the skills that are really useful in doing the right thing at the right time with the right people in the right way, mm-hmm. because we get more practice, you know, being emotionally attuned, doing perspective taking, being compassionate, um, appreciating what in what's most important in this role in this moment, knowing that sometimes we need to be resilient, sometimes we need to grit, sometimes we need to quit. All mm-hmm. of those skills and those muscles of moving through the world take a lot of wisdom and take a lot of practice. And what's terrific if you inhabit a lot of roles is you get a lot of practice in a lot of roles. And the more that you do, for example, task switching or role switching, the more proficient you get at it. The more that you practice taking on your child's perspective, the better you'll be able to take on the perspective of a prickly colleague. That's kind of the transfer effect. The more that you appreciate that a stressful situation comes and it goes, the more that you can deal with a work catastrophe and teach your kids that as uncomfortable as they feel when they're really disappointed or frustrated with their sibling, that that too will pass. So in all these ways, the more roles that we have, the more we build those skills of wisdom and the more that we're able to be wise and model that for our kids, but also be more effective in our work roles as well. Yeah. There's so much to gain, isn't there? When we were talking earlier, I actually had the thought when you were just talking about prickly colleague, I had the thought, you know, if you can deal with a toddler at 3 a.m. having a tantrum, you could probably deal with anyone. <laughs> yeah, totally. That's what I said. You actually, I actually draw on the skills that you've got to manage that. It's like, oh, actually, I'm really good yes. at you know, diffusing situations and calming things down and coming up with good workable solutions. And sometimes at 3 a.m. you won't be and it will just go horribly wrong. Yes. And that's where self-compassion comes in. Here. And that's where <laughs> self-compassion comes in. <laughs> yes. Sometimes we totally don't live up to our better selves ideals. And that is okay. That is human. And that is part of how we learn and grow too. And yeah. not only being forgiving, but also embracing those opportunities, those experiences as ooh, that was painful, but I needed to do that to learn and grow and so that I could do better. And also to model for my kids that it's okay to totally screw up. It's okay to be a beast yeah. and to apologize. In fact, that's a, a really healthy and mature thing to do, even though it's really uncomfortable. Yeah, absolutely. I think if you know, if we reflect on the things that we learn in different situations, and I think this is part of the thing, isn't it? We're often so busy that we don't stop to reflect on the skills we've learned, the capacity we have. We just move from one thing to the next to the next. 
But I yeah. think if we can slow down and people say, oh, I'm too busy to slow down. It's like, well, actually, I think about Kelly Wilson whenever I think of this. You know, we've got a lot to get through. We need to go slowly. <laughs> yes, and I, just I love that line. Brilliant. And people will be like, ha, ha, ha. And it's like, oh, actually, no, that's, you do get more done when you slow it down. And I think if we can actually take the time to slow down and reflect and think, well, yeah, what have I learned by dealing with that difficult colleague? Or what have I learned by having to, you know, navigate all the people in the family and get all the things done and be organized in running a household that I can transfer to work? Or what have I learned at work that I can, like you said before, teach my children about problem solving or conflict or whatever it might be? I think if we can give ourselves yeah. that space and time, it gives you almost the confidence to move forward knowing that you've you've got more on board. Yes. I think that is such beautiful wisdom. And again, it's really hard to do. It's simple, mm. but it's hard to do. And yeah. interestingly, there's there's really powerful science that explains why it's hard to do. That for me is very empowering because it explains. This thing of slowing down, this thing of peeling off what is less important so that you can really invest yourself in the things that matter most to you is not going to come naturally. In fact, yeah. our brains are not wired for it. We're really good at doing more and taking on more and yeah. pushing ourselves harder and feeling like, you know, when we get to X time period that then we'll rest. But that actually isn't healthy and it doesn't lead us to be most effective and it doesn't allow us to live in line with who we most want to be. And so what the prescription for that is to really practice exactly what you're counseling, which is slow down, yeah. slow down and figure out what matters most to you and take some time to reflect because only then are you going to do the things that matter most to you most effectively. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're just going to kind of be racing through life in ways that don't feel good because they aren't consistent with what matters most to you. Yeah. And I think, you know, it, it is a practice, isn't it? And like any practice, you're going to fall off. You're mm -hmm. going to stumble. You're going to forget. And then you're going to get back on and you're going to say, OK, today I need to try and slow down again. And you, sometimes you will and sometimes you won't. And that's a really normal part of the process, isn't it? Because like you say, this does not come naturally to us. This is something we have no. to be intentional about um, and keep having yeah. a go at. And, and in my experience, over time, like most things, if you do keep practicing, um, it does get easier and it can become more of a default. I find myself now more likely to stop and slow and reflect. Not all the time, of course, because like everybody, I've got a pulse and I'm as human as the next. <laughs> but yeah. Over yeah, time, and there's so many interesting, fun, important things to do when you have so many yeah. skills and, and interests. And, you know, it's it's hard to say no. It's hard to decline things. And it's hard not to just kind of go with the frenetic pace of life of everybody around you. It feels like you're missing out on something if you don't do it. Yeah. But I don't know, for, for other people, the cues might be different, but I think it's helpful to know your cues when it's time, especially important to slow down and, and yeah. check your pulse and, and do yeah. that sort of clarification of what really matters most and what do I need to peel off. For me, I, I start to get headaches. If I don't slow yeah. myself down and I'm doing too much I get a headache and I hate those headaches but they're mm -hmm. such an important cue to me they're they are my notice of you've been doing too much it is mm -hmm. time to slow down you're you're not effective now yeah. and you need to do less if you want to do the things that you care about effectively yeah um 
as many of my listeners know, I, I live with chronic illness, and that was my <laughs> that was my. Well, you are going to slow down now because you've not been listening. <laughs> you have no choice, <laughs> <laughs> and that was a big slowdown. Um, and whilst I, I manage that and manage it well a lot of the time now, I will notice flare ups in pain or fatigue that very much are my cues to say, uh uh-uh, uh, you're taking on too much or you're doing too much or it's just time to just settle down. And sometimes that's just literally for a, you know what, I'm just going to go make a cup of tea. I'm going to sit for five or 10 minutes and then I'm going to get back on. But it's honoring. Mm-hmm not only your wisdom, but your your body and your mind as well. And sort of saying, okay, you just need a breather and then you can keep going. And other times it might be, you know what, I actually need to not do much for the day and, and rest a lot. Um, yeah. So it can be those moments of slowing down and rest. It doesn't have to be stopping because I think people get fearful, don't they, of, but if I stop, I won't get everything done. So you don't have to yeah. completely stop. Right. That's where you move away from the black and white thinking into the gray zone of what feels more sustainable and still allows me to keep the ball rolling on the things that matter most to me. So you've had to just generally slow down. I, too, have actually had to slow down because I was just hitting my burnout wall pretty much on a weekly basis for Mm -hmm. a while. And so I started adopting a practice of a Saturday. Basically, uh, I'm Jewish, so it's like a Saturday's rest. And I forbid myself from doing screen or work and really commit myself to resting. And I I commit myself to a nap on Saturdays. And it's beautiful. It really has reduced the amount of weeks where I just feel myself hitting the wall, which, as you're saying, it's not that it doesn't happen. But with that awareness and those kinds of practices, it reduces the regularity of the burnout and helps me to protect my body and my mind, which helps me to engage better as a parent and as a professional much more effectively than when I was pushing myself hard. I mean, there's this paradox, right? Exactly as Kelly Wilson says, like, we got got a lot to get through. We need to slow down. If we want to be effective, we need to do less. (laughs) It's kind of that paradox that is so common in psychology where you know exactly the opposite thing of what we're compelled to do is probably the healthier thing to do yeah which I guess is that part of making it hard isn't it because it doesn't cognitively make sense it's like how can that be true it's like you know well I invite people listening try it experiment with it have a play around with it and see what happens in your own life take a moment to slow down or or do one less thing like Yale has said do one less thing um, before you move on to the next thing. Totally. The other example where this comes up a lot, because I specialize in couples therapy in my private practice, is slowing people down when they're having conversations. Mm. People want to get to the, let's solve this, right? It's so uncomfortable and I'm so unhappy and this isn't working. We need a different solution. And I'm constantly telling my couples that I work with, slow down because it's not so clear what it is that you're solving for. It's not so clear Mm. that you're on the same page. It's not so clear that you understand the nuance and complexity of this problem. Yes, it's incredibly painful, but unless you slow down and prevent yourself from solving it, you're going to solve in, you're going to solve in a way that just leaves you just as unhappy as you were. And maybe even more because now you're frustrated because you put all this energy into solving the problem. You're still feeling bad but you didn't get to the root of what it is that's so problematic and you didn't get on the same page as your partner. So exactly what you're saying is something that we do a lot in couples therapy, which is like slow way down, no problem solving. That is the solution. The solution is we hold off so that we can do it more effectively when we get there. Yeah. 
And I'm sure there's a lot of discomfort at the start of all that. <laughs> totally, 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 right? We, we rush ahead because it's uncomfortable to be where we are. Because people don't want to stop and be with themselves. Hey, I think that there's a big piece, and certainly a lot in my work with people, is this changing the relationship with yourself. So actually you are more comfortable to be with yourself. Right. And then slowing down becomes easier. In fact, slowing down becomes quite nice. It's like greeting a friend. So, oh, I get to yeah. spend some time with you. Hey, how are you going? Yeah. And by the way, as a parent, I think that is something to teach our kids because they're, you know, inundated with screens and entertainment mm. and enrichment opportunities, and they don't get much of a chance to just be with themselves. And we can start by modeling that for them, but we can also encourage them, you know, we're, we're just going to be like, how are you feeling? Like, yeah. you know you're you're a good kid like tell me tell me what's going on if it's uncomfortable that's fine like that's acceptable here too we we can love all of you even the uncomfortable parts yeah absolutely yeah that's lovely so writing a book is a mammoth endeavor with mm. so many opportunities for personal change and growth um what's been your biggest learning through writing your book and having have despite having written the book what do you find is your biggest challenge in being a working parent? Because I think sometimes people can kind of think, oh, well, you know, Yale's written the book now, so she knows she's got the magic answer and she'll be, she'll be nailing it every day. And I'm imagining because you have a pulse and you're human that maybe you're not nailing it every day. <laughs> um, so what I didn't know. What's it been like for you? <laughs> I have to share that my my twelve year old, who's he's like a really funny guy. I love him so much. He he likes to tease me that I'm the parenting expert who doesn't know how to parent. <laughs> he's joking. He loves me and he thinks I'm a great parent, but he likes to rib me. I have a son that has a similar so humor, I think, and sometimes it's like, ha ha, ouch, ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I take it in good fun because I know yeah. how much we love each other. Yeah. But I hope that I'm right. <laughs> I'm sure you um, I learned I learned so much from writing this book. I mean, what was so fun about the process? I, I think I am somebody who's really embraced growth mindset, yeah. and I love learning. But all along the way, there were so many tidbits. I so I'll, I'll share one example, which is initially in the in the book proposal, I didn't have a chapter called "Remember to Subtract." That was a chapter that emerged through an interview that I did with a terrific researcher by the name of Lydie Klotz. And it really changed my frame of thinking. So his research shows that, as we, uh, as I kind of already mentioned, that the human brain is really terrible at subtracting. It's something mm -hmm. that we just systematically overlook when we're making life design choices, that we're really good at adding things to our schedule, adding things to our closet, adding things to the cart when we go through the shopping center. We're really terrible at removing them. And that is just a human brain wiring feature that is evolved in us for a variety of reasons. Recognizing that is really important if you want to cultivate a life that has some space to breathe. But what is so interesting is I, I had no idea about that. I was going to write that chapter to be about um, like benign neglect, this concept of benign neglect that we can do less without harming mm -hmm. our jobs or our children. And then when I read his book and spoke to him, I was like, no, we need to go further. We actually need to remove things to yeah. do a better job. And so that was a, you know, a totally novel idea to me that I had through the course of writing the book. And there was many other examples of that. Um, 
In terms of the things that I still really struggle with, I mean, mindfulness is a real challenge, especially when I'm doing a lot with work. I have a really hard time being very present with my kids. And so it's this deliberate practice of you know, recognizing that it's something that I struggle with and actually engaging my kids. So my, my six-year-old, he just this morning said, mom, your new year's resolution was to do less phone, but I see you're on your phone. (laughs) It's like, you're right, babe. I need to put that away because it sneaks in, right? It sneaks in and it does disrupt my connection with them. I know that and they know that. And I'm very deliberate about talking about it with them. Like, this isn't good. It isn't healthy, in part because I want to do better. And it's actually helpful to have the social accountability. uh, And I make myself accountable by saying, you know, I'm I'm really working on this. You know, call me out if you see it. It's not your responsibility. But like, if you see it, feel free to let me know. But also because I'm trying to model for them that these devices are pretty addictive and that they're going to have to contend with that, too, as they, you know, grow into older people who have devices themselves. Yeah, but also what you're doing is you're saying sometimes things are really hard and you need other people to help you with it. It's like if you mm-hmm. see me, it's not your responsibility, but if you if you want to call me out on it, that would be really helpful. Because sometimes yeah. making change is really hard for us, isn't it? And we do need to reach out to other people. But I love as well that they can say, hey, mum, you're doing it again. Get off your phone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> In that case, I was actually texting with my 12-year-old who was on the bus and wanted me to do something. So I said, (laughs) you're right, but this one's okay, and I'm going to put it away now. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, no, I think our kids can be very wise teachers if we allow them to be. That doesn't mean that they're on the same level. You know, we still need to be parents, but there are things that they can teach us. And as they're teaching us, they can learn too. And that's another way that we can use enrichment in these, you know, roles that have tension to our benefit and to their benefit. Absolutely. I think um, if you allow it, your children can be great teachers. Um, absolutely. And like you say, you, it doesn't mean you're not the, the parent, but just some of the stuff that they come out with, I guess, because they've not, they've not, I don't know if jaded's the right word. That's a bit harsh. Maybe they've not been so, <laughs> influenced, like a, yeah. so influenced by yeah. all the things that we can get caught up in as adults that, you know, society tells us they, they have a little bit more of that sort of, open-mindedness when when yeah. young and just saying it as it is which I think is really quite beautiful this very quite beautiful open honesty yeah yeah it's like beginner's mind they haven't adopted all the messages that that yeah. are kind of corrosive but also they have no filter so that makes it pretty funny <laughs> yeah <laughs> absolutely um, we spoke we spoke a little bit about this with the the additive effect and, and I speak about diversity of practice a lot in terms of um, kind of burnout prevention, not as in just doing more and more and more because obviously that could be a recipe for burnout, but having diversity um, and I think that speaks a little bit to the additive effect that you speak to in your book and how how important do you see those varying roles? As helping professionals, um, I guess, whether parents or not, in terms of helping us to prevent burnout? Yeah, that's a great question. And one thing that, one sort of bit of wisdom that I really love. So we we all know that the body needs to rest and the mind needs to rest. And if you're somebody who is occupied in a lot of demanding roles, it can feel really impossible. Like, how, how do I rest if, you know, I work really hard and then I come home and my kids need dinner and then my baby's up all night. How, how do I rest? 
And that is an important question. And science has some nifty answers because we do need to rest, right? The heart beats 24 hours a day only because it rests between beats. So the hardest, the people who occupy the most demanding multiple jobs need the rest the most. Mm. But unfortunately, you know, a trip to Tahiti um, probably isn't in the cards if, if you're right in the thick of it. And it used to make my blood boil, especially when my kids were particularly young and I was feeling really burned out that people would say, well, you need to really unplug and take a vacation. Like it, it just wasn't possible. We don't live near family. My husband has a full-time job. You know, our kids were young and, and needy. So I needed to find a different way. One body of research that was really transformative for me is the research on psychological detachment, which is basically a fancy word of saying turning fully off. And what the research shows is that when we're able to step fully away from one role, that we rest that part of our brain and our body that gets depleted from occupying that role. And what's more, this is the coolest part of the research, is that it doesn't mean you need to step into a restful role. It means you need to step into a different role. So the paradigm shifting study that I often cite is this study that was conducted in the late 90s with uh, in Israel with army reservists. And what they did, what, what the researchers did was they followed employees at a company, half of whom were re- reservists and who were called into active duty. And what they found was those that were called into active duty experienced less work burnout than those that were not called into active duty. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of a startling finding because what it means is that people who went to war had less burnout, which is pretty bananas if you think about it. But what the reason for that is, is that they were able to psychologically detach because they stepped into another role that demanded a lot of their attention that was different yeah. than the role that they had stepped away from. And we can use that as working parents or, or as people who occupy different roles of whatever sort they might be by using that opportunity and that pressure to step from one role into another. So at the end of a workday, I have to go pick up my kids from daycare or from school. And that might feel frustrating because oh, I have so much work to do, but also I'm really tired from my workday. So the pressure to really fully step into that role and put my phone down and listen to my six-year-old mm. story is actually really restorative for my work life. And I think you had mentioned earlier in our conversation that when you were a single mom attending school, you used to have this experience of, okay, I'm really tired from the parenting world. Now I get to go to school and talk to adults and have this really invigorating uh, you know, dynamic conversation. And now I get to go back to my kid with a a sense of restoration, rejuvenation that's come from taking a break from the parenting role. And the reverse is true, too. So we can take we can really take advantage of the pressure between roles to fully psychologically detach, to really deliberately turn off that role. And again, the science on this is really helpful because guilt can really interfere with that. So if I drop my kid off and he's crying and I go to work if my mind is constantly wandering over to how bad of a mom I am for abandoning him and how sad he must be, that's really going to interfere with my ability to recharge my parenting battery. And in fact, and this is true for most kids, not all, but like my kid probably got over it two seconds after I left and is having a fine day, but I'm going to come back feeling exhausted because now I worked a whole day, but also it was really, my energy was totally fractured because I kept, my mind kept wandering over to him. So we can respond to our guilt that is really toxic in many ways, but also because it fractures our attention in these ways that don't allow us to fully psychologically detach and notice it and say to ourselves, you know, this is an opportunity for me to return to parenting or work, depending on which role you're in, um, more fully and, and 
more in line with my, the best kind of parent that I can be if I bring myself fully back into the role that I'm in right now. So be where I am so that when I go back to the role that I've stepped away from, I have more to give it. And that really gives us permission and in fact, encouragement to really turn off whatever role we're not in, knowing that it helps us in the role that we've stepped away from to do so. It also helps, obviously, the role that you're in to be more mindfully present. Absolutely. And I think if we can offer that compassion to ourselves, yes, this is hard. It is hard to leave a a crying child or whatever the situation might be. And it's going to be really beneficial if you focus in on what you're doing now, because you're going to return as that more present, committed parent when you when you get back as well. And I think, you know, my parenting role has changed. Obviously, I've got a young adult now. And um, but I think about that in terms of that diversity and changing roles where it's not me going from my clinical practice to coming home and parenting. But even when I change from client, I do client work and I do supervision, um, I obviously do my podcast and I do some other work as well. Even just shifting from the client work into something else like this or um I sometimes design houses so that's very different and that allows me to no way that's cool um yes I mean they couldn't be more different I need Um, your help (laughs) with pleasure I love it um it really helps to switch off from the the type of cognitive load that is involved and the emotional load that's involved in doing client work um to when I'm doing something very creative so that when I switch back to doing that, there is more of me to be present again. So I think even if people yeah. are not parents, because um, I'm aware that, you know, many people listening may not be parents, um, this doesn't just apply, does it, to this work-parent role. It can be, you know, <clears throat> work to work or work to partnership or work to whatever else is going on, caring for parents perhaps or whatever it is that's going on totally. in people's lives. Yeah. And you just said the word creativity. And I just want to give a nod to the research Mm. in that domain, too, because exactly what you're saying, like stepping from one role to the other helps to prevent burnout, Mm. gives us a a sense of a break from whatever role that we've stepped away from. Research also shows that it increases our creativity. So and, and in interesting ways, I mean, you might not be thinking about house design when you're podcasting, at least not consciously, but the default mode network, if you've been struggling with, oh, like, you know, are we going to move the kitchen cabinets here or there? Your default mode network actually keeps working while you're asking a podcast guest questions. And actually, you have more creative thinking. It's called divergent thinking when you're not consciously focused on whatever thing you're trying to creatively problem solve. But that only works if you're not consciously thinking about it. So by having those different roles to step into and a little bit of pressure to fully step into them, you can get more creative. And what the research shows is that when the tasks that we're working on are, the content is dissimilar. So in research that they do in laboratory studies, they switch people from a verbal task to a spatial task. Mm. And when the tasks are dissimilar, our creative thinking actually is more creative than when Mm. it's a verbal task to a verbal task. So different kinds of roles actually help us. And the science on this is interesting because what it suggests is that if you're stepping from house design into podcasting, the part of your brain that would think about house design is more free because you're doing something that's really dissimilar. Whereas if you were doing one house to another house, the part of your brain that works on house design would be occupied. So actually having different kinds of roles that require different parts of your creative mind to to work is quite helpful. So exactly as you're saying, it doesn't have to be work and parenting. It can be any kind of role. But the the 
them, the roles being different is not a problem. It's a benefit. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's the the piece, isn't it? I mean, I recommend everybody get your book and, and read that because that's going to really help um, understand these concepts. And it's set in, it's a nice, easy read too. Um, you have a oh, writing you. style. I, I've I've bought books in the past. I think we all have where you read. Them. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to read them. It's like <laughs> this is hard work. And for me, I, I I'm not that kind of reader. I like things to just flow nicely. And um and I did find that with your book. So I'd certainly recommend people um pick up Work Parent Thrive. Um, so <coughs> excuse me. If you were only able to give one piece of advice. What would you most want our listeners to take away from our conversation today? The, the most important advice that I have is the most general advice because it captures <laughs> more advice giving. <laughs> just to capture it all. Um, and that is to develop a growth mindset around tension between roles. In other words, to see discomfort, sort of the the opposition between roles is an opportunity rather than um, a hindrance as something that you can take advantage of rather than something that is exclusively painful and, and something to be eradicated. Because again, it can't be eradicated, but there are benefits just like we think about the symbol yin and yang, right? They sort of yeah. press against each other, but they're not actually in opposition. They're complementary. Mm. And so the more that we can find ways that our discomfort can serve us, the better we can take advantage of the ways that our roles press against each other. And the more tolerable the discomfort will feel because we can recognize like it's uncomfortable and we can have lots of self-compassion, especially for those crummy days where like there's nothing good going to happen. But at the same time, we can look for opportunities for benefit to emerge even in the discomfort. Um, so in other words, you know, my hope for people is that they develop uh, the working parents version of a growth mindset, which I call a work family enrichment mindset. Yeah, that's beautiful. So this next question I ask all my guests and, I, and I, it's my favorite. <laughs> if you could meet your 80 year old self, what do you think she would say to you? She'd probably say you should have slowed down and taken Haley's advice. <laughs> <laughs> Take Haley's advice and slow down. Yeah, Go I actually on. think that that's true. I think it's true. It's such good advice. It's really hard for me to do. And I will say it's, 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 be, it's, I'm really privileged. It's because there's so many things I want to do. I get so excited. I love parenting. I'm obsessed with my kids. I'm yeah. fascinated by research. I love reading. I love talking to people on my podcast. I love writing. Yeah. I love seeing patients. So it's really an embarrassment of riches that's the problem. But I think that I would enjoy it more and do a better job and feel better about what I was doing if I took your advice and slowed down. There's still time, Yael. You're nowhere near anything. <laughs> <laughs> I have a couple of years left. Yeah, I got, I got some years to work on that. <laughs> <laughs> so finally, if people want to find out more about you or get in touch, where can they find you and engage with your work? And I'll put some um, links in the show notes for people as well. Awesome. Thank you. Well, you, if you love Haley's podcast, which you, I'm sure you do, you can also um, hopefully enjoy our podcast, which is called Psychologist Off the Clock. It's offtheclockpsych.com. And then my writing website is workparentthrive.com. And then you can find me on the social media channels by looking for my name, Yael Schoenbrunn. 
Fantastic. Yell, yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm sure that people will get a lot out of this episode. I've I've really enjoyed it. Um, so thank you so much for coming on and sharing so much wisdom. Um, it really, really has been a pleasure. Uh, well, you are just a treasure and I'm so grateful to have had the opportunity to connect with you. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for sharing this time with me today. I hope your time here was helpful and supportive. If there has been something in this episode that you have found helpful, I invite you to share it with another person you think might benefit. I'd also love it if you'd like to leave a review wherever you tune in. Reviews really help to increase awareness of podcasts, meaning I can spread helpful information more widely. All reviews are welcome and much appreciated, as I know they take time out of your day. Music and editing by Nissa Ray. Thanks, Nissa. I wish you all well in your relationship with yourself and may you go well and go gently.